Tax Vibe, a fresh new podcast by the Tax Institute. I'm Robin Jacobson, the Senior Advocate at the Tax Institute, and your host of today's podcast. We love the vibe of tax, and here at the Tax Institute, we do tax differently. I'll be chatting with some of the tax profession's great thought leaders, who will share valuable and practical insights you may not hear every day. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Vibe. I'm joined by Peter Godber, the President of the Tax Institute. Peter has over 35 years' experience advising on the tax system in Australia. He has worked in several leading professional firms, including 20 years with Grant Thornton. Peter is currently National President of the Tax Institute. He is a Fellow of Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, a member of the Law Society of Queensland and New South Wales, the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, and the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Peter, welcome to Tax Five, and in particular, a great pleasure that I'm recording this with you in person at the Tax Institute's Barossa Convention in South Australia. Thank you very much, Robin, and it's fantastic to be here at the Barossa, an event that we had to defer last year, but it's wonderful to get the feedback and input from those who are here face-to-face in the Barossa this year. It's really good to be here. So what sort of feedback have you been receiving so far when you've been just talking with the members? Well, I think we knew post-COVID that you know, whilst particularly at the Tax Institute, we were um, flexing and, and being um, adaptable with our events, doing more and more online, that the value that we have really comes out when we have face-to-face events. So it's the community that you have at venues such as this in the Barossa. But when members talk about what they like um, at these events, it's very much about talking with others and being here associated with uh, other members in the community not just sitting and listening, but talking to others around the events. So the face-to-face still holds great value for our members, I think. We became experts in in online communication last year, and and of course the most frequent phrase of 2020 was, you're still on mute. Now, we haven't got that ability anymore to mute someone when we're talking face-to-face if we are uh, not particularly interested or, in fact, they are uh, not getting the technology working for them. We continue to see a really a hybrid approach to delivery of content. And do you think that will become a permanent fixture or is this just a, a phase we're going through as we move out of COVID? Robin, I think the hybrid nature of our delivery is going to be a permanent fixture. It is great to see the attendance at events and our numbers coming back to face-to-face events. So this year, the attendance levels are as high as we've had in previous years. Uh, and that's why it's looking for the rest of the year. But we can add to that by bringing in members online as well. So they don't have to be at an event, they can tune in from anywhere around the country really and get the benefit of our events without actual attendance. So I think we have the delivery mechanisms now that allow those who cannot attend for whatever reason to to do so um, remotely and through um, electronic means. So it's face-to-face, it's online, and it's a hybrid, hybrid mixture of both that I think is bringing out greater value for our members. And I'd like to just do a quick shout out too to the events and and organising staff at the Tax Institute who amazingly converted some face-to-face events into online very quickly when forced to do so and cancelled face-to-face events to run them online when we did have more notice. It was a real challenge for us, wasn't it, to flex with those times, to quickly learn how we did deliver online. We did that and as you say, and I think we agree, it's certainly part of our future. They all stepped up and it was very pleasing to see. When we look at moving into the guts of 2021, the year is certainly um, well and truly underway. What do you think are the prospects for the profession? Everyone's weary. People are tired. They've been hit with a lot and had to cope with a lot. Yet there's still a bit of optimism out there that I'm seeing and growing optimism. So what are your thoughts on this? 
Robin, that's a really good point. When we talk to professionals about their feelings at the moment, we do get some fairly consistent feedback. Certainly the COVID year that we had put a lot of stress on our members, on professionals, on the tax profession. Professionals as intermediaries in the whole system were certainly asked to do a lot. We saw that with JobKeeper and the rollout. Prior to that, I think members were put under pressure with um, the rollout of single tax payroll. What's coming up uh, is system changes like uh, director identification numbers and the intermediaries are going to play a huge role in that. So even without COVID and the challenges of working remotely, I think the professionals that we talk to feel as though they're under a lot of pressure to do a lot of things that aren't necessarily remunerated, that we're an important part of the system before we deal with a lot of client issues. Added to that, we've had clients under stress, businesses um, certainly suffering through COVID. And I keep saying that in economic times like this, there's often a lag. So in the services that we provide, I would have expected that whilst JobKeeper has come to an end and we're into 2021, that it won't be quickly back to normal. Um, So this year, with clients, I think, continuing to be under pressure, and we certainly get that from our members, that they're dealing with clients in different ways. Um, Clients are becoming more resilient and coming back, but I think there's still a lag. So there's a lot to do for, for clients under pressure, but I think as professionals, when we look at our role in the whole system, Um, and how we operate, there are pressures that add to that. Um, We've seen that in the the health and wellbeing of our members. As you say, tired from a really hectic year. Into the future, I think there's still going to be more of that, so we have to be conscious of that. We need to be very conscious of what we can deliver to improve the health and wellbeing of our membership. But I think there's a sense of optimism that it's going to get better, but I I do (laughs) encourage this in a lot of our consultations, that I think the regulators just do need to take note that it's not going to happen quickly. Um, and 2021 looks a bit like 2020, but I think by the time we get to 2022, it might be something different again. Pride is another word that I would use to describe the profession. I know there's been the odd comment about practitioners who've begrudged not being able to charge their clients for the work that's been done, all the incredibly long hours that they couldn't recover all their fees. But I think in the main, there was such a strong sense of community purpose and supporting their clients and the community more generally the work had to get done, we all just stepped up and did it. And I think we can all, and I I don't just mean the institute, the profession, I include all practitioners, I include the tax office in that, everybody stepped up to just do what had to be done. And there's a great sense of pride that comes from that. I agree with you, Robin. And certainly in our consultation last year with the professional associations, and as you say, with the regulators, particularly the taxation office, there was this sense of community in what we're all doing so I think we all pitched in for that and that's been good for us it's certainly improved the relationship we have with um, regulators and other bodies I think looking forward to as I talk to members about how they do with their clients um, businesses have become more resilient as well so in the way that we deal with our clients and the way that clients deal with their systems the way they respond to compliance pressures We're having discussions which I think lead to um, better ways of doing things and being more adaptable to cope with issues like this into the future. I'd like to move into a discussion about the budget and our pre-budget submission and and what we can expect from the budget. Now, of course, it was delayed by some six months last year from May to October, but we are on track to have the government release the 21-22 federal budget on Tuesday the 11th of May. Now, the Tax Institute has already lodged a pre-budget submission and we've flagged a number of technical issues in that. What can we expect from the budget? If we look at 
moving out of the, the COVID year that was. I look back at the rhetoric at the beginning of last year, it was about, we're basically returning to surplus, we're back at the black. And there was a great sense of optimism by the government. Then COVID hit. That went out the window. We knew we were going to have eye-watering numbers in the form of deficits and, and big debt figures, and they are eye-watering. The focus now is to bring the budget back under control, but to continue to support the economy and to get growth and productivity going. So what are your thoughts and expectations that uh, will come out of the budget? Well, in terms of the budget, I think there's two things. Certainly in our pre-budget submission, as we have done in the past, we look for and hope for changes to the system for the longer-term benefit. Hopefully there's more of that in the thinking. But I think secondly, and what we probably can look forward to in this budget, is a continuation of stimulus measures. So it is true that we are seeing an economic recovery, and the Treasurer is starting to talk about this now. Tax tax changes have got to be a part of that. Um, so if there's key things that we'd like to see, certainly it is a continuation around reduction in tax rates, bringing forward proposed tax rate um, reductions and changes. And I also think with the stimulus measures for business, as we saw last year, when we needed to make quick changes that stimulated business, tax incentives such as the instant um, asset write-off for investment under $30,000 was, as we've submitted, I think, in our, in our uh, submission, pre-budget submission, something that, that can continue. It's a stimulus measure that's important. So I would hope that there is a continuation of uh, business stimulus measures in the tax reforms that are announced with the budget. I think there's some positive things that we can look forward to in the budget. Short-term measures... And as I said, we're all always looking for longer-term reform measures. That might be something that we continue to look forward to beyond the budget um, itself, but we're continuing to make submissions that there are deeper things that need to be considered. Now is the time for deeper thinking around tax reform. And we are, through our tax reform, our project reform case for change uh, works, certainly adding to the debate on significant tax reform into the future. I'll discuss tax reform in more detail with you shortly. Just in terms of the budget, it's interesting how more recently comments made by the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, are looking at perhaps approaching budget redesign in a different way. So typically when we look at improving the budget position, it's all about cutting spending or increasing taxes. And that seems the obvious way of monetarily adjusting the budget outcome. But... There's also this talk about creating extra employment. Now, the Treasurer has said that if we can create 200,000 extra jobs, then for a start, we have GDP increasing as a result of that productivity. That means, by definition, the debt becomes a lower proportion of GDP. Now, that could be just tweaking the figures to say, well, you haven't actually changed the budget position. You've still got a big deficit there and you've still got big debt, but it's a smaller proportion of the GDP. But it moves on to monetary outcomes because... The Treasurer is saying if we have 200,000 extra jobs created, then that would reduce welfare payments by around $3 billion, plus those people would be paying tax, and that would bring in $2 billion. So that's a net gain of $5 billion to the system. Is this a novel way of approaching budget repair? Well, it certainly seems as though, from what the Treasurer is, is saying and what we're hoping to hear, that as we are coming out of a deeper recession uh, and there are more unemployment, it makes sense that there'll be less reliance on government subsidy and maybe more tax just raised organically through that growth in incomes. So maybe we're in a 
different and unique set of circumstances where that is part of the solution. So it doesn't take too much to put the, add those numbers together and, and work out that through the raising of taxation through greater employment, it's part of the solution. I think we'd like to see in addition to that some more significant measures around rates. But certainly, I, th I think from what you're saying, it's right that we are in a unique set of circumstances. And just through recovery and greater employment, there will naturally be revenue raised through taxes and less reliance on government payments. So that has to have a significant budgetary impact, and we'd hope that comes through. And of course, with the tax cuts, they have already been legislated. So that will happen from 1 July 2024, being the stage three cuts. And this is where we're going to have a 30% tax rate applying in the ban from 45000 right through to 200000 It basically eliminates one of the brackets entirely, and that is true reform. We're not just tinkering with rates and thresholds, we're eliminating a whole tax bracket. But there are certainly some that are opposed to those cuts even going ahead. Now there's pressure on the government to even bring forward those tax cuts by three years. And look, within a couple of weeks, we'll find out exactly uh, whether that comes to fruition. But I think it's a remarkable time. You also spoke about the instant asset write-off and how we are supportive of retaining it in some form. I think we should um, acknowledge that we've actually recommended it be a permanent fixture of the system. We've had some form of instant asset write-off for small businesses for many years, but in the last five, six years, since 2015, it went from $1,000 to $20,000 to $25,000 to $30,000 to $150,000. And then that measure's been removed and we've now got the full expensing measure that actually doesn't have a dollar limit on the asset itself. It's more about, about turnover. The constant tinkering. How are businesses supposed to keep up with the changes and know which rule applies when and to which asset and what's eligible and what's carved out? What are they not allowed to apply it to? We've got to keep this simple. And it's a good policy, but the way it's being executed perhaps could be done better. Robin, I agree with you. You, you talk about the tinkering in the system and... Often the tinkering affects smaller businesses most, uh, whether it be in the asset write-off measures, whether it be in other areas of determining taxable incomes. The, the small businesses seem to bear the brunt of a lot of uncertainty. So one of the things that we're certainly very conscious of in a lot of our consultation is that we remove uncertainties as much as we can. And I think those areas that you mentioned that do directly affect small business in particular, particularly when the go-to measures seem to be around instant asset write-off and other things that stimulate smaller business, there has to be greater certainty in the system. So our, our advocacy and consultancy around these measures, particularly with, with the ATO, uh, is to try and improve the certainty that these businesses have. Uh, and any way we, we can achieve that through legislative reform, uh, I think is a particularly important measure for, for us to advocate and support. Moving back to tax reform, the Tax Institute has been involved in a, a very ambitious project for nearly a year. So we have undertaken focus sessions, roundtables, keynotes, consultation far and wide, We've engaged with our members, we've engaged with business groups, government agencies, the other professional bodies. It culminated in our virtual summit that we conducted last November. We're now in the process of putting together our case for change, the, the written document that will go to the federal government and the state governments and will be publicly available. Is there hope for reform? But I think we'd always like to hope for reform. And I, I think there is 
a genuine consensus that reform in some measure is needed. We advocate for holistic reform, so holistic reform is quite a significant undertaking. In uh, our work around project reform, and I think in the case for change, there's some significant but ver very positive measures that we would advocate for in terms of broadening the tax base, uh, reduction and certainty in tax rates. Even if you look at the things like uh, employment taxes and the FBT system, we can certainly simplify those regimes, maybe remove the FBT and replace it with something that's a, a little bit more simple. I think that the will is there. It's a question then of how, how it happens. We will keep advocating for positive and sensible change. The stumble that I think we keep coming across is whether there's the political will or whether practically reforms, reforms that are on the agenda and stay on the agenda will be implemented. It was interesting when we had our financial services conference last week in Sydney, Senator, Senator Andrew Bragg talked about this. Whilst there are many politicians who have the national interest in, in mind, as he said, sometimes it's hard to get the consensus that's needed, certainly in a Senate at the moment, to get things through. That's always the political and practical stumble that we have. But I think if you have the national interest in mind and the betterment of the system, we can advocate for things that are coming through in our case for change, which are consistent with, with the views of other organisations and business uh, advocacy groups. There needs to be simplicity, there needs to be a broader base, there are things that we can do. They are significant, they have a political impact, so that's certainly the problem that we're going to have in getting things changed. Senator Bragg spoke at the Financial Services Conference in Sydney last week, as you said, and he made some remarks about the corporate tax rate. Can you summarise what he said? Yes, I, I was there and I, I think it was in essence that whilst the corporate tax rate we have is heading down for, for some businesses. As a general rule, we are still above what might be considered now OECD average corporate tax rate. So whether it's four, five or six percentage points above what that average might be, we are still, cons we are still seen to be a, a high corporate taxing nation compared to what an OECD average might be. We'll continue to compare ourselves to countries like Singapore and Hong Kong that have a, a low and attractive rate. I think the message through what the Senator was saying was that we are still above what might be considered to be an average. We do need to bring that down, if only for the perception that we give to investors from outside of Australia. I don't think we want to be seen to be a high corporate taxing country. And if that's to be the case, we do have to make a fun more fundamental shift. Uh, and the OECD comparisons are an easy way to highlight that. We are still seen to be um, taxing more than, more than the average rate, and we do need to make some effort, I think, to change that, or certainly change the perception around our taxation system. These comments really pertain to the 30% rate, which applies to companies that are not base rate entities. So those that are over 50 million turnover, or that have significant amounts of passive income. So for the first time in many, many years, we've now got two different tax rates, a two-tiered system, where smaller companies and those that are in business effectively have a 25% rate, which seems to be closer to what could be a, an ideal objective here, whereas the larger businesses are still on 30. We have to remember, of course, that the government did intend for everyone, all companies that is, to move to the 25% rate together, but the Senate rejected that for the, the reasons you've already described. 
So is it apt to describe this as unfinished business? I think it is unfinished business. And I think even from the comments that the Senator made, in the, in the minds of many, it remains on the, the longer-term agenda. It's the 30%, the highlighted 30% corporate rate that we would fundamentally need to shift. But it does remain, I'm sure it remains in, in the minds of many uh, in, in politics that this stays on the agenda and we have to keep pushing for some more fundamental shift in that rate. But the crossbencher makeup is making that very challenging. It seems to be a difficult one at the moment. Absolutely. Another issue I wanted to discuss with you is more about law design. There is a need and a role for integrity measures. We need to ensure that people can't manipulate the system. We need to make sure that if a measure is targeted, only those who are supposed to be targeted benefit from that measure and it's not open to others. But I think there also needs to be a balance. And I wonder whether we have actually tipped the balance too far the wrong way. Have we reached a point where integrity is now stifling the operation of the law? Where having to work through integrity measures to determine are you entitled to do something, receive something, benefit from something, use a concession, is actually so difficult in practice because you're trying to ensure that you meet or fall within the the integrity measures, but it becomes inefficient and complex and in some cases overwhelming for practitioners. I spoke to a member at the Barossa Convention today who shared with me that the biggest compliance risk for her practice is working through the integrity measures for the small business CGT concessions. Now, have we lost uh, track of what we were originally trying to achieve? We're supposed to be bringing in rules and make rules available to small businesses so that they can get CGT relief. And yet we've made it so difficult for them to do so. Have the scales tipped too far? Robin, I think you make a really good point around integrity measures and I guess these observations have been around for for quite a long time now but the instance you mentioned about the small business CGT concessions is a really good one. Yes, I think so. I I think, again, this is a long-standing issue around the certainty or uncertainty in our law. Whilst we would all generally support integrity measures properly targeted integrity measures, and we have to deal with the general anti-avoidance regime. We can can do do that as best as we can, but that's a given. Specific anti-avoidance measures that are embedded in the law to deal with narrow case of circumstances do give rise to great uncertainty for for many of us. So we get this feedback a lot, Uh, and it is an area of the law that I think needs, a law design that needs to be remedied to some extent specific anti-avoidance measures to target specific cases that have broader application beyond the original target are a great cause for uncertainty um, for practitioners. I think there is a, an issue here around the whole law design. We need, there's a lot of, we might talk about this a little bit further, but there's a lot of announced unenacted laws in the system as well. I think from a policy design point of view, we need to really identify what policies need legislative reform and how you go about that reform process we have a role to play the tax institute in that consultation so we need good consultation before measures are introduced to ensure that we avoid uncertainties in the law and then i think also we we could work harder on a lot of the explanatory memoranda that comes through with the law so we properly understand what the policy is and then there's greater reliance on maybe what the target of specific integrity measures is as well And that's an issue that the Tax Institute has raised in previous submissions, both to Treasury and the ATO. The role of the explanatory memorandum 
and subsequent guidance, typically in the form of law companion rulings issued by the ATO. And there have been concerns expressed that too frequently the EM, the Explanatory Memorandum, tends to just restate the law without truly explaining it. And then it's relying on the ATO through the ruling system to explain the law. And that's really not the way it was supposed to operate. I think we have a great fear, Robin, that that's the way it's shifting, that there is greater reliance on the ATO guidance, which might not be contemporaneous and takes a long time sometimes to get out. So we would like to see some certainly greater certainty in the law, but greater um, substance in the explanatory material that supports that. Less reliance, therefore, on the ATO to provide interpretive and administrative guidance because we know also in that system there's a lot of guidance that's on the table for issue but for various reasons it may take time to come out. That guidance of itself might not be very simple. So there's, I think, a range of issues we can also productively deal with with the ATO in terms of what that guidance looks like, how it gets out and how it very quickly or more quickly creates certainty for our members and tax professionals in the way that the law will be administered. So certainly law design, but secondly, guidance, contemporary guidance and useful guidance is something we will continue to advocate for. Two examples I can point to in the superannuation arena. One is the indexation of the transfer balance cap. Now, for those who work in this space, uh, you will all appreciate the comments I'm making. For those who have no idea what I'm talking about, The transfer balance cap is essentially a limit on the value of assets that can be held in a superannuation fund to get concessional tax treatment on the income derived from those assets. Now, since 2017, the limit's been set at 1.6 million. We knew in time it would be increased through indexation, and that's now a reality from 1 July this year when it moves to $1.7 million, so an increase of 100,000. One would think that everybody would be able to benefit from that indexation in the way that everybody benefits from the indexation of any other cap in the tax and superannuation system. However, in this case, if you have already maximised your cap, you can't access any of that indexation. If you've partially utilised it, then you'll be able to partially utilise the indexation. So this is what I point to as an example of an integrity measure designed to stop people from benefiting too much from the indexed cap but the complexity it's going to create and the hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of Australians who will have their own individual and unique personal transfer balance cap, relying on information that's reported to the ATO that is in turn reported back to the taxpayer through different forums and avenues, is going to be really challenging. Another example I can point to is the non-arms length income. We talk about law design, which was originally intended to deal with a particular arrangement, um, typically limited recourse borrowing arrangements, where effectively you don't charge full arm's length for an expense such as interest on a borrowing, and therefore the income should be treated as what we call special income or non-arm's length income, taxed at a higher rate. But we can end up with these nonsensical outcomes where a discounted accounting fee of 50 or $100 suddenly taints millions of dollars worth of income in a, a superannuation fund, and that assumes, of course, a large fund balance. We seem to, again, have lost our way in making this practical and making sure it's targeted. And I know these are concerns that a number of our members hold, and there has been some work done in this space, absolutely, by the Tax Institute, dealing with both Treasury and the ATO. But I think of those as two very simple examples, and there are, there are dozens more, if not hundreds. You're absolutely right. So they're good contemporary issues. Um, we can go back decades, okay, right back to you know, the demerger rules, the introduction of those, and integrity measures around capital reductions in the corporate world. 
very uncertain, still producing uncertainties. You know, how we deal with that and those sort of issues in a practical sense remains on the table. But if we've got contemporary issues or contemporary instances of similar sorts of things coming through the law, I think we have got a fundamental issue that we need to advocate on for change, that there has to be something in the process and the mindset around the le- legislators which helps us to avoid these uncertainties. You talk of holistic tax reform, and one of the reform areas that we are certainly watching very keenly is that of Division 7A. Now, we could look at this at a micro level and say we're waiting on the new law to be released in exposure draft legislation following the 2018 Treasury discussion paper. But at a macro level, maybe we shouldn't just be thinking about how can Div 7A be reformed, but how does Division 7A interact with the corporate tax rate, the imputation system, the taxation of trusts? There are lots of moving parts that if you stand back and look at it holistically, reform could be done across all of those regimes to produce a better outcome. But we just tend to get caught up in the weeds and focusing on the individual provisions. How do we tweak this and make sure this works properly? And sometimes we just need to stand back and look at the bigger picture. That's a very good point, Robin. Uh, So you explain that so well, but we look at Division 7A and the taxing of private companies going back a long way now. We've become bogged down in Division 7A changes and the administration around those rules for a long time now, which is still giving us and our members and professionals great problems. And and the delay now in Division 7A legislative changes and associated um, guidance is a real problem. So I think you're right. We're, We're sort of losing the holistic view on why it's there and what we're trying to do with the system. And I think that's another really, really good example. Another more recent development is the release of PCG 2021-D2, which relates to the allocation of professional firm profits. Now, there's been a lot of talk. We've waited around three years for this guidance to be released in draft. We have made a submission on this. Can you provide a bit of an update or some commentary on what the members are thinking and feeling about these rules? Yes, Robin. Uh, I guess there's been a lot of disappointment about the timing uh, of the issue of PCG, but probably more specifically around the consultation process. So I know it has been going on for a long time, where the Tax Institute and other bodies have been as close as we can to it. The final release, I think, has disappointed many because it still creates uncertainties and some believe takes us back a few steps. So it is probably an example of where we don't like to be in having guidance issued, which still creates uncertainty or doesn't doesn't give us the certainty that we need. So it's a process we need to improve. I think, as you say, there is disappointment with the outcome. We're continuing to work on improvement to the final product, but I think in terms of process, the timing and the consultancy process, there's disappointment with the way engagement took place and and the outcome. So it's not a very good example, but it certainly highlights the things that we can improve around certainty in the guidance at issues. Two of the issues that we pointed to in our submission. One was, why is the profession being singled out? And by the profession, I mean professionals. So it could be accountants, lawyers, medical practitioners, engineers, but professionals compared to other types of businesses such as retail. And the second is the way that the PCG describes that consultation with the profession was targeted. Now, it was very targeted. It was so targeted, in fact, that those who were involved in the consultation were not even permitted to discuss it with the professional bodies that they were representing. And that strikes me as an example of where 
maybe it's not quite as transparent as it, it first seems? Transparency and consultation I- is an issue. So to the extent, and we appreciate that some co- consultation needs to be confidential, we need to bring about the right outcome in the end. So that if that means that there needs to be broader consultation through these individuals with the relevant professional bodies, then I think that's something that needs to happen. Peter, I'd like to share an anecdote. I spoke with a member yesterday on the way to the Barossa Valley. And this was a practitioner who is a sole practitioner, no staff, has been absolutely slammed by COVID like thousands of others, but can't get his head above water. And he reached out yesterday, just not knowing where else to turn. And this practitioner is falling behind in his lodgements and feels that no matter how hard he works and their 12, 15 hour days relentlessly, just cannot get on top of the work. And I was, of course, very much wanting to assist him in whatever way we could. I reached out to the ATO and I had no doubt that they would do otherwise, but they immediately contacted him that afternoon. And they've arranged to work with him and and arranged some deferrals for his lodgements. And that's an example of where not just we can assist the member, but the ATO is assisting us to help the member. And that collaborative approach of everybody working together, everyone being available. And I'm hoping that member went to bed last night, just feeling a little bit more optimistic about the world. Robert, that's a fantastic example. Well done. I think even Chris Jordan, the Commissioner, talked at our tax summit last year about the important partnership between the ATO and tax agency professionals and the collaborative approach that is necessary if we're to improve the system. I think that's something we do particularly well, our engagement with the regulators, and whether that be, of course, the ATO, Treasury, the Board of Taxation, the Tax Practitioners Board... There are a number of agencies that we're engaged with, of course, the Inspector General of Taxation and and Taxation Ombudsman. All of these are important stakeholders in the system and we engage with all of them and and it's important that we have those strong relationships so that matters can be escalated and we get the right outcomes. Peter, any final comments as we wrap up our discussion? I think we've had a fairly all-embracing addressing of many issues for our members in the profession. Certainly not easy, but I think we've highlighted a lot of things that we'd like to work on and that's part of our strategy. Peter, thank you so much for your time and great to see you in person. Thanks, Robin. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax 5. I've been chatting with the president of the Tax Institute, Peter Godber. To keep up to date with Tax 5, be sure to subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, Follow the Tax Institute on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can join the conversation on our member-only community forum at community.taxinstitute.com.au. Not a member of the Tax Institute? Join a collective voice of 15,000 practitioners at the heart of the profession and find out what the best tax professionals have in common. Join today and you'll have an all-access pass to the tools, resources and opportunities that make our members some of the most successful tax practitioners around. For more information, visit membership. You can also contact us by emailing taxvibe at tox try that one again. By emailing taxvibe at taxinstitute.com.au. We look forward to you joining us next time.